So, so far in the uh, Bible doesn't say that series, we've looked at two different phrases. The first being, God won't give you more than you can handle. The second being, God just wants you to be happy. Both of which are pretty common phrases from what people attribute to the Bible and our culture. And it's hard to say where these ideas really originated when they became a part of the cultural understanding of the Bible. But it is almost certain that neither of these phrases are nearly as ancient or ingrained in the minds of Christians and the culture as the one we are looking at today. God helps those who help themselves. All right, so let me take you on a walk through history to uncover where this idea started. Our first stop is with Mr. Benji Franklin. Benjamin Franklin. You guys know Benjamin Franklin, right? Benjamin Franklin, right? Not yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, none of us in here are, are that old. <laughs> oh, we got the jokes. I love that. So Benjamin Franklin, famous American historian, uh, excuse me, famous figure in history. He was not a historian, but he was a part of our history. And he contributed a lot to this country. And in the year 1732, Benjamin Franklin started publishing his first ever copy of the Poor Richard's Almanac. Okay? Which is a very uh, popular publication. He published it for 25 years straight. And he made new editions every year. And he sold nearly 10,000 copies every year. So it was very popular, very lucrative. Made a lot of money doing it. And in the 1736 edition, which you see here on the screen, on the heading May, or under the heading Monday, June 4th, these are the words that we find. God helps them that help themselves. All right? And there's a bunch of other things he says here. But this is one time that it was written down and obviously published, and a lot of people saw it. It was very popular. Let's go back even a little further to Algernon, Algernon, excuse me, Sydney. What an interesting name. So Algernon Sydney, he was a politician in England in the late 1600s. And he wrote a book called Discourses Concerning Government, which came out in 1698. And it does not sound like a book I'm particularly interested in reading, but someone read it, okay? People read it, apparently. And in this phrase, or in this book, we find the phrase, once again, God helps those who help themselves. All right, and this is to many the first time that these exact words have been put in that exact order in the English language. God helps those who help themselves. And many people attribute him and Benjamin Franklin to the popularity that we find today in our culture. Now let's take a, a step further, right? Back even further to the Quran, which was written in the 600s. So this is a thousand years before Mr. Algernon, okay? The Quran, of course, is the founding document to Islam, and it's very popular. There are 1.8 billion Muslims in the world today. And this Quran has a few different quotes that sound similar. Hmm. That's awkward. Amber, can you get me some batteries out of the battery box? Double A's. So while... Everybody on the live stream can't hear me. You guys can still hear me, right? Okay, so the Quran. Going back 600 years, um, there are a couple of different quotes 
that sound like God's help those who help themselves. So the Quran says in 1311, I don't know what that reference means, but it means something. It says, indeed, Allah will not change the condition of a people until they change what is within themselves. All right. So Allah in the Quran says, you know, if you want me to do something for you, you got to start with yourself first. And then he also says, is there any reward for goodness except goodness? The implication being that if you do good things, you are going to get good things. If you help yourself, I'm going to help you out too. You got double A's? Great. That's good news. Thank you very much. Wow, three of them. Ha <laughs> Can't keep me silent. Yeah. Who sabotaged me? Who put these dead batteries in my... Who did it? Maybe, maybe you're trying to silence Tom from Praise and Prayer this morning. But you can't. The Quran says things like this, right? And let's, let's go back even further to the beginning of when this phrase started. All right, so we were in the 600 ADs. Let's go back even 1,000 more years. 500 years before Jesus was born, we have to look at a man named Aesop. Okay, this is a statue of Aesop. Uh, I don't know if he really looked like that, but that's what the people think he looked like. And Aesop was a Greek author. Like I said, he lived 500 years before Jesus. And Aesop wrote a bunch of stories, and they were eventually compiled into a book you may have heard called Aesop's Fables, or the Fables of Aesop. And these are kind of like foundational mythology of Greek and Romans. Um, This is kind of goes along with their pantheon and what they believe. And in this is a story uh, titled Hercules and the Wagoneer. Right? And in this story, there's a man's cart, the Wagoneer, who gets stuck in the mud. Right? And so he's stuck and he can't get out and he doesn't know what he's going to do. So he starts praying to the guys. He's like, gods, please help me. Come unstick my wagon and so I can continue on in my journey. And he's praying. And then Hercules, obviously this demigod man who's super strong, walks by, very capable of helping him. And he says, put the cart on your shoulder first. Why are you praying to the gods? The gods help those who help themselves. Straight out of Hercules' mouth, so you got to believe it. This goes back 25, 2,600 years. This idea. No wonder it's entrenched in our common language, right? It is old. Almost as old as Chuck. I'm just kidding, Chuck. It's way older than Chuck. This idea has literally been around for thousands of years, and not once does the Bible say it. You use this phrase exactly anyway. And Benjamin Franklin, he was a smart guy. Aesop, I'm sure he wrote good stories. But no offense to them. I prefer to know what God says straight from his Bible and not take the thoughts of men, even if they were smart. And this idea that God helps those who help themselves is not something we can directly quote from Scripture. It's important to know that. But as we've done in every phrase so far, we're going to give it a a fair shake. And we're going to look at what does the Bible actually say so that we can walk away with what God actually intends and means. Today, we're going to look at what the Bible says. And we're going to try to understand what it means that God helps those who help themselves. First of all, we need to start a conversation in 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 3. 
Don't read ahead on me, okay? Just turn there. Because we're going to look at verse 10 first. So the book of Thessalonians is written to the church in Thessalonica. It was the city. So he's addressing it to these people. And it's the second one he wrote. It's called Second Thessalonians. And in this book, he writes a really interesting statement to the church in Thessalonica that sounds a lot like what we're talking about this morning. So like I said, we're going to just start with verse 10. We're not going to read anything else. Look at 2 Thessalonians 3.10. For even when we were with you in person, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. All right? So at first, it seems like this verse is really in line with God helps those who help themselves, right? If you want to eat, you work. Right? If you want something, you got to work for it. you got to do it. If you want God to bless you with food, you better work to get your food. And this seems right at the beginning. And in a sense, it is true that we need to do our part. Now, at the very surface level, there are other things in the Bible that may sound like this. Like, you reap what you sow. You know, we kind of find that idea in the scripture. And that's why I think this phrase, particularly this week, is difficult. It's, it's super difficult because there are are things in the Bible that sound similar to this idea. Even if we can't find the direct quote, there are, seems to be kind of this idea. Well, let's take a step back from verse 10, and let's look at what Paul says leading up to it. Let's start at verse 6. So this is what Paul says. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every evildoer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when you were, we were with you, we gave you this command, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. So just think about Paul's situation here. Think about it from his perspective. So Paul is on this missionary journey to establish new believers in new churches. And when he lands in Thessalonica, they had little information to no information about who Jesus is. And they certainly don't know about Paul. Right? They don't know who Paul is. Maybe they heard something through the the grapevine from a neighboring city where he'd visit or something like that. But for the most part, they have no idea who this guy is, and he just shows up and he starts teaching them. And it's a good estimate, most biblical scholars agree, that he spent about a year and a half in that region while visiting other areas. And that's a long time, right, for Paul to ask for these people to provide for him and take care of him. And you can see why maybe starting to establish a church while also asking them to take care of you could be difficult. And so in order to not take away from his ministry, to take away from his opportunity to uh, evangelize these people, he worked so that he could buy his own food, so that no one could accuse him of being a freeloader, right? So that no one could say, hey, this Paul guy, he's just going to show up and he's going to say some fancy words and he's going to demand stuff of you, right? That's not a good way to start a church, and this church obviously had no established um, idea of Jesus. They had no established culture of giving um, and supporting uh, people who were missionaries and going around. And Paul even says that it would have been totally fine if they decided to help him in this way. 
but he didn't want to. And he was acting as a model too. So Paul is urging this church to follow his model, to make sure that everyone is contributing to the group so that there's no division, there's no one freeloading, there's no problems coming from that, uh, prop, from that specific instance. And so this is a pretty different idea than what the phrase God helps those who help themselves kind of implies. Right? Paul is speaking about not being a freeloader. But I think the phrase uh, God helps those who help themselves is more usually tailored towards people who are facing difficult times. And I think we wouldn't be doing justice unless we tried to understand what do we actually mean when we say God helps those who help themselves. Well, here is what I think the phrase implies. Here are four things. If you're, no, if you're a note taker, this is the time to take notes. We got a lot of things to keep track of today. Number one, I think this verse or this phrase means and implies that we can force God to help in our lives in some way. That we can force God's hand. That we can, uh, for the lack of a better word, quid pro quo. We can do a quid pro quo with God. Right? I give you this. And in return, you give me this. And I think that's something really wrong <laughs> with that. Like, we have this kind of secret social interaction with God where we can manipulate the situation to get what we want. Number two, I think it implies that it makes us judges of who is actually worthy for God's help. Right? It, we can sit in the judgment seat and we can say, hmm, what have you done? Or what haven't you done for this particular situation you find yourself in? And so if we honestly take this phrase to heart, we can look at someone in unfortunate and difficult times and say, the person in this position is there because of what they have done. They've done something wrong or they lacked to do something. They aren't doing enough. And while there are times, that is true, that our decisions do lead to poor outcomes, that is certainly not the case for everyone, right? I mean, we... Even faithful people are in dire straits. They've done everything right. They've followed God. They've walked faithfully. It's just because we live in a broken world and sometimes bad things happen. Right? So we could be tempted to judge someone and say, you're not worthy of God's help because you haven't tried hard enough. And that kind of reminds me how the Jewish leaders treated things. If you're blessed, then you must be doing everything right. God must be giving you good things because you're doing what he wants you to do. And if you're suffering, you must have sinned somewhere. You must have messed up. You need to figure it out. Get back on track and then God's going to start blessing you again. And I think that becomes a test then that we apply for ourselves. Are you worthy or are you not? Are you living life correctly or not? And I think that's really dangerous. Number three... It allows us to disregard someone's suffering by appealing to our sense of fairness. Right? We love to be fair. We love things that are fair. We love fair trade coffee. Right? And if you have a bag of candy and you have two kids, you're going to split it evenly. That way neither of them complain after you take your parent candy tax, of course. But yeah, we love fairness. And our sense of fairness can be destructive. When we say that a person is suffering fairly because of what they have done or what they haven't done. A person is blessed fairly because of what they've done. A person is suffering because it is fair. The problem is we usually don't have all the facts. 
And we don't really know what's fair anyway, do we? According to scripture, we're all sinners and we should all be dead. That's fair. We'll talk more about that a little bit in a second. We'll let that just leave, leave you hanging with that. Last thing here. If we really take this phrase to heart, it puts us in a place of superiority over others. So you just think about it. If we're saying that our current position and our prosperity, our blessing is directly tied to what we've done and how we've helped ourselves, then we are saying that our success and our prosperity is our own doing. And that fills us with a lot of pride. And it makes us think that we are over others because we are better than them on our own merit. This ignores the truth that God is the ultimate source of all gifts and life and blessing and power. And even though this phrase includes the mention of God, like, oh yeah, God definitely helps me out. I think we're very quick to forget that everything comes from him in the first place. I think it's easy for us to be conceited and to rely on the truth of this common phrase implies that we on our own merit, get what we deserve. And we're better than other people. We are superior. We are more equipped because we have done better. So let's compare this phrase now to some verses that we find in Scripture to figure out how it stacks up. First, let's look at how Isaiah speaks about God's nature. Isaiah 25.4 says this, for you have been a defense for, what does that say? Helpless. The helpless. Hmm. A defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge for the storm, a shade from the heat. By definition, helpless people means what? You can't help yourself. And despite our lack of ability to help, help ourselves, God offers his protection, care, and power to his people. Psalm 72, 12 through 13 says, For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. Simply, there are times when people are beyond their ability to help themselves, and God does not reject their need because of that. If anything, he steps in and takes care of them because no one else can. Because they can't find help for themselves. Look at this verse here. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Certainly, when it comes to the topic of salvation, we are helpless and powerless to change our condition. Think about that. If we had to help ourselves before God would do anything, then we would still all be looking forward to a future of nothing but death. 
but through the extraordinary love of God and his son, Jesus. Even despite our helplessness, we are saved because an innocent and sinless man died in our place. Nothing we read in these verses implies that we can force God to help us through a quid pro quo. It certainly does not elevate any specific group of people over another. It doesn't check any boxes to our sensibility of fairness, and it certainly doesn't make us feel good and feed our pride. These verses, specifically Romans 5, put all humans in the same humble position before God. Helpless, ungodly sinners who are loved by a great and powerful God. So where does our ability to help ourselves come into play in these verses? It's definitely something I think we need to think about. Unfortunately, though, it's not that simple. Our conversation doesn't stop there. Sorry. Because God does help the helpless. He does work miracles. But he also calls us to live a righteous life and to work hard. So there's a balance to be struck here in our understanding, a nuance to walk. And I hate that because it makes it more tricky. So I'm not saying this is the clear-cut answer on everything, and you need to think about this yourself too. And this phrase is difficult to work out. But at least here are some examples of how we are called to live a righteous life and work hard. John 14, 15 through 16 says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. There we go, another helper. That he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the word world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you have him, because he abides with you. He lives with you, and he will be in you. But even to do this, to be in this position that Jesus is talking about, we need to be empowered. We need to be helped to live a life that is righteous and follows God's commands to seek after him. And on top of that, we are called to work hard and do it diligently. Colossians 3, 23 through 24 says, whatever you do, whatever you do is just a way of saying everything you do. Everything you do, do it your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So yes, we are expected to live a certain way and to work hard. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, we shouldn't be freeloaders. We shouldn't pretend to work and take advantage of other people's work. We should contribute as much as we can. And I think that is a healthy part of being the family God and just in general being a part of a community is that you contribute to it as much as you can. But that doesn't mean that our status with God is dependent on how much we do. What I mean is our behavior shouldn't be motivated by trying to get something from God. We shouldn't try to be tipping the scales in our favor by the work that we do. We should be living a righteous life and working hard because God has asked us to do those things. It's a response to relationship. And like I said, this may be the most difficult one, the phrase that we've looked at so far. And it takes such a fine line to walk because, yeah, you can look at someone and say, yeah, your circumstances are why you're where you're at. 
you've made some really poor choices. But that doesn't disqualify them from getting help from God. And you can look at some people who have had really tough times and said, there's apparently nothing you've done wrong. Why are you in this situation? It's because the, the world is broken. So here are some things that we need to digest and walk away with for today that I think will help us try to make at least some of this concrete. Something that we can live by. Number one, don't take God's credit. When we use this phrase, God, God helps those who help themselves, we can start to draw attention away from the work that God is doing in our lives and attributing it to our own, our own doing. We're doing well, we're blessed, we're prosperous, we're okay because of what we've done. And sure, God is a part of it, but we've done a lot of it ourselves. In contrast to that, we need to realize that every breath we take, everything we do, everything we plan, is ultimately in God's hands. He has the power over everything. As Proverbs says, 16.9, says this, in, my, in the hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. And God is the ultimate source of everything. We wouldn't literally be here without him. So let's not take that credit away from God. Let's give him the glory and honor he deserves for the ways that he works in our lives. Number two, we need to realize that faith is not a scorecard. When we subscribe to the idea that God helps those who help themselves, we start to keep track of what we've done and what others have done. And that turns faith into a scorekeeping religion, which, if you're competitive, might be more fun for you. What you've done, this or that, how much you've given, how many hours, you can track them all, you can give yourself a gold star. And then that makes you a judge based on credentials. Faith is not a scorecard. It is a relationship that inspires us to live and act in different ways. It is a relationship that saves us, not a checklist. Number three, the simple truth is that God does help the helpless. One of the most beautiful things about God is that he's loving and caring and compassionate towards all people. Not just the rich, not just the powerful, not just the capable, but the weak, the poor, the disenfranchised. God is compassionate and is a fierce protector of his people no matter their status. And there are going to be times when we are at the end of our abilities to, to help ourselves. And this is kind of the same phrase as God won't give you more than you can handle. They're kind of buttoned up here a little bit. We're going to come to the end of ourselves, and at the end of ourselves, we find a limitless God who is able to handle all problems and sorrows and dangers and needs. And we are serving that God, the powerful God who is always there for us, who is always there to protect us. And we've said it before in this series, but we need to remember to be careful what we are communicating to people when we talk. Is there a time that we need to put our nose to the ground and work hard? Yes, without a doubt. We need to work hard. And sometimes that is the only thing that gets it through our heads that things need to change, right? We just need to get down and work hard. But it is not our value that defines our relationship with God. As far as it's not how hard we work that defines our relationship. It is Jesus Christ who stands in our place and gives us confidence to approach God as his children. That is what defines our relationship with God. And because we are his children, 
We are a part of his family, and he loves us, and he's going to take care of us. Please pray with me. God, I thank you for the opportunity to come together this morning and to think about what your scripture says, what you've given us. I thank you for the opportunity to come and worship you and your son for all that you've done. And I pray that you continue to provide your hand of blessing on us. That we continue to live and work hard for you and what you want us to be doing. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.